he left Kojak. I mentioned Kojak in, in our last week's coverage just because I was like, I love Kojak. This is great. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we can't take him on motorcycles. So we're just going to ditch him in the woods and he'll take care of himself or whatever. I'm like, they left their dog behind. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? You figure out, a, you get a backpack, you figure out a way to yeah. like take that dog with you. I don't know what you got to do, but you find, you get a sidecar for your motorcycle. You find a way. Welcome, friends, to episode 168 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the middle third of Stephen King's 1978 novel, The Stand. All right, here we are, James, with the middle section, the book two, which is, I think, the largest of the three. Uh, a lot happens in this section. We kind of theorized a little bit last week. You, you theorized on what you thought might be going down um, as the story progressed. And I'm curious to know, like, where what actually happened lined mm-hmm. up with what your expectations were. Um, were. Were you were you pleasantly surprised, or or did things not live up to you? Uh, what you were what you were expecting? I think in some ways I was correct, and then in other ways I was not at all. Um, <laughs> you know, I felt like the the natural progression of a story like this would be for all these main characters to get together and to see, um, you know, them bounce off each other. And in that way, I think I kind of said that I th- assumed that would happen. But at the where they left us at the end of book one, they were all traveling in totally different directions. So I didn't really see how that could be possible or how, how it would at least have taken a long time, which it kind of did. Um, I have like two things to talk about here. This has got to be the most we've ever read in one week for the podcast before. I think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure because even, be. with, even with it, we split it up into five different sections of book. Um, so I'm yeah. pretty sure in terms of like word count, this was the longest and it was maybe it was, I, I think, didn't we read all of like hunt for red October in one week though? So how much maybe, was it? We, yeah, I it guess it might've yeah. been a little more, but yeah, this was a lot. It was a lot. This was a lot. And, and something else I've always wanted to ask on the podcast, but never remembered to actually ask is when you're reading, when you're reading a book, are you precious with like, if you have a paperback, which I do of the stand, are you precious with the book or are you the kind of reader that like bends it backwards and like roughs it up? And cause mm. I, I want to know like where you, where you stand on that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I, I do have like a certain reverence for the book where I don't want to completely, you know, rip it up. Um, also it's like, I feel like it's practical because especially if you're reading a book like the stand for a long time, if you're really <laughs> uh, rough with it, it might not last to the end. Yeah. yeah um, seriously. but in general, like especially a paperback, I, I also think that they're kind of designed to be beat up. That's like mm-hmm. the whole point of them. They're not super pricey, you know, heirloom objects, although they, they can last for a while. Um, so in that sense, I don't really worry about it too much. Um, so yeah, somewhere in the middle. How about you? Yeah. I, uh, I'm like weirdly precious about it. Okay. And like, uh, so no dog earring for you. Well, yeah, no dog earring. I use bookmarks. I don't either. Um, uh, and like, I don't bend the books at all. I don't like to bend them too far. Like I like to, honestly, a lot of the time I'll like, I just have it kind of resting in my hand folded outward. And however the book naturally lays, I try not to bend it beyond that. And this Mm -hmm. is like a weird thing for me because 
I, I find myself I'm like this book, you know, it wasn't very expensive. I could buy another copy if I wanted to, yeah. if this gets too beat up. And, and for whatever reason, while I'm reading it, I'm just like, oh, it's so precious. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't beat it up. And yeah, I'm glad I finally asked that on the podcast. But back to the stand. Um, yeah. There's a lot more sex in this book than I was expecting. I Weirdly. think it might be the horniest Stephen King book that we've covered so far. Um, that was that was a note I, I I definitely put down. I I didn't remember how horny this book was, um, but it's yeah, it's very well. Horny. Even it's it's horny and at, and then at times it goes like to extreme sexual violence and stuff oh, sure. in many ways. Yeah. And like it's just a lot of like there's a lot of like sex going on in this. Whether mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and that's true in a lot of King's books, but not to this level. I, yeah, I would specifically agree. this this second yeah. book too. Like this mm-hmm. this section was was just like I was I felt like every chapter, every other chapter, it was like some couple was getting together or some some crazy thing was happening. Um, yeah, and it really I, feels I, to me like King was trying to push the envelope with this book a little bit. Like I'm going to write a book that is about this epic confrontation, and it's kind of in the vein of a Lord of the Rings. Yet it's going to be filled with sex, and and that's why like when I look at Stephen King, like I feel like there's some precursors to what we got later with like George R. R. Martin, right? Who like someone who wanted to take this sort of mentality and apply it to actual like secondary world epic fantasy, but I can see a lot of the same kind of uh, tendencies here with King, um, and and like to try and just make it gritty and you know quote unquote realistic, and you have characters fucking all the time, you mm. know, and 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 you know all the like troubling things that can come along with that too is also in here, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff in here from King that I feel like he was still figuring out, um, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he was still in the process of learning, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that didn't age well. Yeah. Um. And and I actually had the the observation reading this that I think I have changed as a person significantly since I read this just ten years ago because I didn't read this book when I was like, you know, sixteen or something. Like I, I read it not that long ago in the scope of things, but ten, a lot has happened in ten years. <laughs> um. And I feel like I've changed a lot in ten years, and the the dramatic difference i had in reading this book was a clear example of that where just like all these things that i would have just read right over without even thinking about it i was like cringing at um Mm -hmm. and you know some people will be annoyed by that because they'll say that i'm being you know you know (laughs) i don't know overly woke or something um but i i'm happy with the fact that i can identify stuff now like i i'm proud of that fact and reading through it, though, I, I couldn't help but go, well, this is pretty sexist. Oh, this is kind of racist. Oh, this is definitely racist. This right. is very ableist. There's a lot of like problematic just stuff in this book. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to say that like because like I, I feel like the, the reduction of that point of view is people see that and go like, oh, you can't ever have a bad character who's this or you can't ever have a character who, you know, is magical if they're this and that's not really the case it's it's just more about like stereotypes and generalizations and sometimes it's even like minor things that get tossed in where it's like not even necessary to the character yet it gets thrown in there and it sort of tips the hand of the author like obviously there's a little bit of prejudice going on right and to give an example of this almost every single character in the story refers to a mentally impaired mentally handicapped person 
potentially, which we can talk about as by the R word, right? Yeah. Repeatedly, everyone is calling it. I will also say, though, I know for a fact that that was a term medically used um, in this era. And it and since then, I think it has it, it became a term that is no longer used. But it, to defend it a little bit is I think that that's literally what you were diagnosed with in that era. Gotcha. So that you know that I, I don't think he meant that as a slur, although it definitely I think had the connotation that way. Um, and, and I think he does actually use some other slurs that were slurs at the time. So I'm not saying he's above it. Right. Right. Um, of this era, like you said, if I'd been younger when I read it. A lot of this stuff would have gone by me and not and I wouldn't have realized um, like you said some of the negative connotations are like negative things that are being said about people because the world was definitely different then. Um, so I can yeah. definitely see what you're saying about like well, this book it, changing yeah. for you. It, it, and it's, it's weird because I feel like it really highlights the way I've changed more than anything. Um, mm-hmm. All that being said, like I'm still enjoying the book. I, I'm still really, mm-hmm. really having a good time with it. Um, and I, so I don't want to say that like it, it has completely ruined the book for me or something. That's not the case. I don't know. Yeah. That, I don't know what that says about me or, or us in general. If it like, like, I hope that it's a good thing that we can see the things that are wrong with the story and then still enjoy it. Um, yeah. cause I think that that's going to be the case for a lot of art as you know, it's things are, things are not going to date well as time goes mm-hmm. on for forever. So yeah. it's hopefully like to be able to see the art and maybe remove it and put it in the time that it came out. I do want to jump back to, to kind of talking about this section now. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I appreciate the first book more having read the second book, obviously, because King does so much to set up each of these unique characters. Um, and they really do feel unique. I, I haven't read these characters before. You know, sometimes you'll read these stories with tons and tons of characters who interact in a similar like apocalyptic story. Like I, th- these characters are unique to themselves for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I thought that that was really the strongest part was seeing all these characters come together, bounce off each other, fall in love, hate each other. The strength of this, I think, is definitely on the characters so far. The it, because that really is the whole story. The like the the doomsday situation has happened, and then it's really just the goings on of life. And and then now we're leading into a conflict that I'm still in the dark on going into book three. Yeah. But most of most of book two is sort of like the human interaction. Um, yeah. of what's happened since the pandemic well and we'll get into it because we're going to go through character by character like we did last time um but one of the major unifying events is the creation of the boulder free zone and uh there's a lot that goes into sort of like organizing society and mm-hmm. there's like a committee that is formed and i remember that that was one of my least favorite parts when I originally read this book like I liked it okay but I, I feel like I thought it was kind of dry and just didn't really I didn't really care that much um whereas I actually was kind of into it this time a little bit more and again like I think that's maybe just the way I've changed like I, I was I sort of was nerding out about the idea of like what would it be like to try and craft a society and clearly they're using America as their blueprint um but they're free to like change and modify things as they wish and um, I don't know. And like the idea of like, they have this existential threat looming and this like confirmation seemingly of, of like magical power in mother Abigail and the way that they have to like figure out what role she's going to have in society. And like, what are the lasting implications of that? Are we a theocracy? Like, I, I don't know. I liked all those conversations I thought were pretty fun. Mm-hmm. It's a very real way to deal with it versus like the more fantastical way where you don't really care about all of that. And you just go, yeah, we're going to follow this king because he's good and just and we're going to believe in God because we all believe in God. And, you know, let's go. 
the religion stuff is very interesting because you have just people all along the spectrum of life, like whether they were sort of like uh, God fearing or not. And yeah. uh, to see several in a, agnostics in a, talk about being agnostics or atheists. Yeah. In a post apocalyptic world, um, I think religious people would say that everyone's going to turn to faith, right? They're going to be like, holy shit, God save me, please. There's nothing else to turn to. Mm -hmm. Um, And to see like the, the sort of theological, uh, like philosophical debates going on in this story was fun too, like between, between certain characters. Yeah. Well, like Nick is, you know, he doesn't really believe it. Um, Right. But it's funny because I do feel like King is putting his thumb on the scale because we keep getting, you know, like obvious demonstrations of it being true. And we do feel like Mother Abigail is right. And we feel like whether or not they, you know, she and others like understand God, like clearly there is something going on with higher powers here. Um, You know, you know, and and what the dark man represents is clearly sort of an evil satanic maybe uh, force. And it's hard to like look at a character who's agnostic and feel like they know what's up it's instead you feel like they're just holdouts you know a lot I mean? of them are having to deal with the fact that they don't believe in it and there are there are clear supernatural things going on everybody's having the same dreams yeah. everybody's you know seeing this person like it's not just a phenomenon like that's yeah. a that's like clearly something's going on yeah there's proof uh, exactly they're drawing lines to the antichrist they're drawing parallels mm-hmm. to god and uh there's even questions of whether one of the characters is is god or like a like a v, like a vessel for god or mm-hmm. and like vessel Prophet. for the devil yeah yeah very it, there's a lot of that going on as well so and, and you know like i i don't study religion really and so so i would love to know like how somebody would would it, what what king might have been planting to sort of like um draw parallels to like i guess christianity or yeah. or some sort of faith uh to like little easter eggs for those people and it's funny because I felt like King deliberately was leaning heavily into Christianity here um, as the like, it's almost like the magic system of this fantasy story. It's like, you know, there's an existing theology I can play off of. There's an existing magic system that people like many people wholeheartedly believe in and many other people at least like kind of believe in or are willing to believe in. And because of that, the stand is a, it feels believable, right? Like it feels, even though it is still a fantasy with magic and gods and all this stuff, it's like, yeah, but it's but it's Christianity. It's like it's familiar and it feels like stuff that people actually believe in. And the way he also ties that to like uh, psychic abilities, like a lot of stuff that we've talked about, like people actually believe in this in the real world and telepathy and stuff like that. And he takes that and he's like, yeah, you remember this thing you've actually heard of in real life? And you know, that's true. And mm-hmm. here's a character who can do it and you want to believe it. So King is very good at making us buy into the fantastical in that way. Like he gives us uh, entry points, right? He does do that a lot. We've no- we've noticed that uh, yeah. where he'll take like a, like a real story that he reads in a newspaper or something and then thread that into his story so that he can like, you know, show that it's some sort of supernatural element to his story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we get that with like there's a conversation about planes and like how full planes uh, are less likely to crash than half full planes or sixty yeah. percent full planes. Uh, you know it's funny. I uh, I was so taken by that by that story. Right. Uh, he he goes into about how there's like an abnormal number of cancellations before before these these uh, planes that crashed, and um, he he had talks about this study that was done that that showed that. And I was like. What is the what is the truth behind this study, right? So I, I looked into it; doesn't exist. 
No such oh. story. No such study was ever done. The, the person fictional. he cites is was invented by him. Got completely it. fiction, but he does a really good job of selling you on it possibly being yeah. true. Well, the thing is, like, I, I know this is early on in his career, but like, he's done it now enough for me to be like, well, I, you know, I assumed that it was something that he looked up in a newspaper, you know? Yeah, but it's not. He just so. made it up. But it's he makes it sound really. And, and again, he's like, it sounds like something that you would buy. Like it sounds something that you would believe is true. Um, so he's playing with you there. But yeah, I mean, well done. <laughs> oh, something else I remember. I, I can't remember for sure, but we were listing King projects that we did last week. And I, I think because of The Shining, we forgot to mention Dr. Sleep. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Shit. We did Dr. Sleep as well. <laughs> we've done a lot. I knew there was I knew there were other ones that we didn't mention because we've done a lot of King and it felt like we didn't list them all. So um, but that brings me to the actual shine like the is being mentioned by yep. by Abigail at one point. And uh, I was like, wow, he's like, this is before The Shining, right? Before. So no, he's like, this is after The Shining. It is after. OK. Yeah, I think this is his fourth. I think this is right after The Shining. OK, gotcha. So he had already set it up in The Shining, but still. Yeah. Uh, before you know, before it, before a lot of other major novels that would come out. But people talk about like interconnected worlds and like, I don't know. I, I would love to know like who began at having like these massive blockbuster books or movies or whatever that were interconnected. But like not a lot of people have done it successfully. And he kind of is like i think it was it was like a little known thing by like king fans that he had an interconnected world and then and yeah. then as his sort of king renaissance has come about in the last like i don't know 10 years i guess uh because you know he was massively popular with his books and everything but then his movies started to do well um and i think it's like common knowledge now but it's yeah. crazy to think that he was doing this in the 70s i can't remember if this was something i listened to him talk about or if this is just theorizing but it really seems like he he includes a lot of it to be like little easter eggs for his his like devoted readership who read mm -hmm. everything that he puts out he's like i'm gonna put these little things in for them these little breadcrumbs that tie things together mention a character who's in another book and then go oh i know who that character is make them feel like they're in the know um mm -hmm. but it's not required to like appreciate the book and, and, and clearly, key. like those Easter eggs have have snowballed into the Dark Tower later exactly. on. Exactly, <laughs> and they snowball, yeah. And then he writes the Dark Tower, which ties it all together. Which at some point we have to cover because uh, Randall Flagg is a very important character, I think, to to that to that series. So nice, cool. Um, I believe I haven't read it. I've just this is just things I've heard. So that's not like something I'm not coming with book knowledge. That's just what I've heard. Um, Anyway, I think we got to get into these characters um, so that we have time to talk about what actually happens in this part. Um, before we do, we just wanted to mention that our uh, uh, our Patreon has fully been updated. Um, some people have already been checking it out. We've got some people who've uh, already upgraded to different levels. Our new art that we commissioned uh, by Natalie Metzger is on there. You can get it on a mug. You can get it on a t-shirt so forth. Um, also, we just have other benefits available to different tiers. So if that interests you at all, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. Yeah. And we also have a survey up right now that we would love for you to check out. It right. It's, you know, we're trying to collect data to understand our listeners and understand what they would like out of the podcast and, and, you know, so that everyone can feel fulfilled here. So if you, it's a two minute, uh, two minute survey. So if you would be, you know, if you have time for it, please fill that out for us and, uh, it'll help us get a good grip on what everybody's looking for out of the podcast. Yeah, and that is bit.ly slash survey ITF, all lowercase. So yeah, just type that into your browser or whatever, pull it up. Yeah, two minutes, uh, 10 questions, and it would be very helpful. I don't know if we, have we added main characters? I feel like we kind of have in the second in the second book. Um, but we also have all of our ones that we went over with last time. Um, most of them have significant 
changes. I, I did want to kind of combine two, focusing mainly on Franny, but um, Stuart Redman is definitely another major character, but a lot of his story sort of intertwines with her. Um, so, and also kind of Harold, which is definitely, he's like a main character at this point. Um, but again, very tied in with her. So let's focus on them. I think that'll give us a, a big chunk of the story. So we, last week we left Franny and Stuart, they had just met with Harold. They had just met all together. Um, and the three, along with Bateman, arrive at Stovington to confirm not only the deaths of everyone at the Stovington f facility, but also that Redman was re nearly killed there. The group then continues on their westward journey towards Mother Abigail, during which time Goldsmith falls deeply in love with Redman, who is significantly older, a sentiment she records in her diary, in addition to many other aspects of the trip. Harold confesses his love to Franny, and she politely but firmly rejects him, before she and Stuart reciprocate their feelings for each other despite their difference in age. They eventually enter a marital relationship once they settle in Boulder. Goldsmith serves on the original Free Zone Committee in Boulder and acts as its moral compass. Upon her union with Redman, Lauder becomes jealous, but later ap appears to have dealt with his emotions. However, Goldsmith remains suspicious of Lauder, which is later justified when she finds details of a plot to kill Redman in Lauder's diary with the use of a bomb. Goldsmith saves the majority of the committee when she intuitively senses the presence of the planted bomb. Goldsmith is moderately injured in the blast, but her unborn child remains safe. Goldsmith is opposed to Redmond traveling west, but comes to terms with the journey when she realizes that Redmond is compelled to follow through with the trip. Okay, so obviously a ton happens there. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of the book, but... Yeah. Yeah, and switching switching from first names and last names. This this description has most of it in last names. So Redman is Stu. Yeah, Stu uh, Redman, yeah. Lauder, Lauder is Harold. Harold and Lauder, then yeah. Goldsmith is Franny. Yes. Just so that we're all clear here. So uh yeah, like I, I, I I'm definitely gonna touch on Franny, but just to kind of parallel what's going on at the same time, Stu basically rises to leadership at, at this uh, where at this in this free zone. Mm -hmm. Um and Harold is kind of like jealous in the shadows a lot of the time, but at some point, he starts to kind of smile it off and like seems like he's doing all right. He gets in with like the grave yeah, well, diggers and go back to like they get together and right. she starts keeping this diary. And then there's like a really creepy point when they're first like having sex out in the woods where like we see that Harold's out in the shadows, like watching them. And there's certain times where I, King really knows how to use that omniscient POV to like pull back and show you something that the characters themselves don't see. Um, but gives you that sort of like, it's almost cinematic at times it feels like, but, but, but he also can get into their minds in, in a way that you can in a movie. So it's really interesting. And he does that to great effect here. Um, and then, yeah, like Harold decides he's going to start a diary of his own. He like, he starts spying on her. He reads his, her diary and, and finds out about all this, all the like thoughts she had about him, which weren't very, you know, kind, I, I, I would think would be fair to say. He's putting on a happy front in front of everybody. Everybody thinks he's doing well. as well. soon as he does that, he's like, I'm going to fucking play the role that everybody wants me to play, but he's going to harbor all this resentment and just like bottle it up and let the rage fill him. And he, I, I feel like I really shat on Harold as a character because he is reprehensible in many ways. But like, I want to give credit to King because he's a really compelling character. And I feel like he's the kind of person that, like, a lot of people know somebody like this. Yeah, it feels real. That's the yeah. thing, right? Like, it's so creepy and it's so fucked everything he does, but it does feel realistic. It doesn't feel like some fantasy creation of the king. Yeah, and, like, the way that he holds on to every grievance and, like, he just can't allow himself to move on. Like, if he would just let go of all this grievance, like, 
he would be fine. Like he was like, people liked him, you know, like he was respected in the community. You know, he, a lot of the problems that he had, he didn't have to hold on to, but instead he just like keeps it all within and he has to get his vengeance and um, everybody's out to get him and he can't ever trust anybody. And like people like that, like create their own problems. And that's definitely mm-hmm. what Harold seems to do here. Yeah. Um, when Franny started keeping the diary, I was like, oh man, bad idea. Yeah. As much as it's good to, d- to probably drop this stuff down, probably, probably going to end, end poorly. Um, and that, that also like one of the first things she writes is about how he like comes onto her fully. Um, Harold like comes onto her and like tries to kiss her and she like backs up and like falls over and she gets hurt. And, um, you know, he, he's just like forcing himself on her and, yeah. uh, it's gross. And then, and then it leads to all the stuff that we're talking about here. Oh, uh, one other thing I want to say about Harold, he he's terrible in many ways, but one of the ways that he's not terrible is that because he's fat and I don't, I really, it really bothered me how often it seemed like King was equating his physical appearance with his moral problem failings. This is a trope. A lot of people have identified, but he would constantly talk about him being fat and pimply. And, and like that was, it was also like, it seemed to be equated with his like problems. And then like, as he became better looking and like his skin cleared up, it was like, oh, now he's a good person, and it's right. represented by this. And like the way those two things were tied together, it was like this, these two things have nothing to do with one another. And it really would frustrate me when he would tie those things yeah. together. But again, like I said, this just, this book is just not his most forward thinking book, you know, by by any stretch. Right. Yeah. So Franny. So obviously Franny's pregnant this whole time, and yeah. almost basically no one knows until she tells Stu. Stu right. Yes. Yeah. Stu's the first person he she tells, and. Um, you know, that's a crazy thing to have to deal with. Like she mm-hmm. people are taking and this is was also wild and bizarre to me. Everybody's taking sleeping pills so that they don't have the bad dreams that they're all sharing and stuff. Yeah. Um, and just like thinking about an entire community of people medicating themselves to not deal with these dreams and stuff yeah. is wild. I mean, I can see you know, it. She, I, I like I buy it. But yeah, it is, it is pretty extreme. And then she's not doing it, obviously. Right. She's not just in case because she doesn't want to tell anybody that she's pregnant, but she's, you know, so she, so nobody can tell her that it's okay yeah. for her to take these pills because she's pregnant. You know, so she's being terrified nightly, basically, yep. by the, by who, who uh, she imagines is having a, like a coat hanger, um, mm-hmm. the, the dark man in her dreams. Um, and I just wanted to, uh, it's just like kind of a writer thing. And I've highlighted it before, but I want to give it again because I know we have, we have some listeners who are, you know, writers themselves. And one of the things that King does, and I think it's it's kind of a trick, but it works so well, um, is he gives every character some sort of like little mantra or a little like recurring image or recurring theme that they keep touching on. And it kind of like centers you in the character whenever he switches POVs. And, you know, one of them for Franny is like her, her thinking of the coat hanger. Um, another one I think is the, um, every dog has its, every dog has its day with Harold. Um, you know, a lot of these characters just have something like that. Um, it's these little repeated phrases. Um, and you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting many of them, but I I feel like every character has something like that. They touch back on, they circle back to it. Um, and, and, uh, oh, like with Larry, you know, you ain't, you ain't no nice guy. That one for sure. Like he constantly Mm -hmm. thinks about that phrase and that is like a core, it's not, it's not just a throwaway phrase. It's like a core thing for him that he is like fixated on and, and shows his like character growth of like, I'm he's trying to prove that wrong. So, you know, they're important, but they work. It's pretty cool because it's not jarring and it's not like, um, 
invasive to the story where like if you're reading it every time you read it it doesn't annoy you to read it right. again like you said it kind of does because he you. finds new ways to bring it in and like how it applies to the new situation or a new right. thought the character is having about it yeah it's pretty cool and like you said i i think like a lot of people will read this and not even notice it like i, yeah. I was noticing that it was happening but i in the way that you just explained it like i, I wasn't thinking of it that way yeah. like it is really well, a device of the writer yeah to, to... you know I'm, i try and look at it from a writing point of view and go like you know not just like appreciate the entertainment but also go everything that's happening is done for a reason there's choices behind it and why is he making these choices and i think that's one of the things he's doing to establish character and to to make it accessible to people like you can see like it's very easy to see larry underwood's you know journey through looking at it in that lens um so it makes it kind of accessible in a way oh i also really like like i'm a sucker for epistolary writing um, mm-hmm. if I'm, if I think I'm using that correctly here and, and essentially what I mean by that is like when we get the writing of a character as the thing that we're reading, um, and we mm-hmm. get that both with Franny and Harold where we're reading their direct writing, their, their thoughts. Um, and it actually kind of switches POV cause it says like I, cause like it's literally Franny's words, literally Harold's words. And I just love that. It's like another way to bring us close to the character. It's, it's a thing that like writing can do that is really cool. It, it, I guess like in a film, it would be like found footage maybe a little bit like, but even that is a little different. Cause you're still like, you're, you might be viewing from behind the camera, but you're not in the head of the person doing it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's something really fun that fiction can do. And whenever she, when I, I remember her uh, writing the journal, I was like, yeah, I love this part. Cause I, I don't know. I just really like getting those direct, like right from the tap <laughs> uh, thoughts and, and feelings. And I don't know. I just think it works cool. Yeah, and it keeps the narrative fresh, too, because mm-hmm. it's sort of, like you said, a switch POV. It's kind of like it feels different, feels fresh. Um, and then there, there's a little bit of that as well with the minutes from the meetings that yeah. we're getting. We're, we keep yeah. getting like the the, the commi- committee keeps coming together and then we get, we're getting like the we're reading it as, as if we we're reading a transcript of the meeting. Mm-hmm. So that's that's also pretty fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So do we want to talk about the bomb now or do we want to like save that? Yeah, I was going to say, I do want to kind of with the bomb stuff, my prediction is, and I don't know that this is necessarily like an, like a bold prediction or anything, but I think that, um, I think that Franny's baby is like a shiner, like a, like a, has the shining of some kind. Like, I think that like her, you know, her moment of, of like realization in that moment and her terror. And there's a lot of moments of this throughout. And, and that also brings up another theory that I had, like, are all of the people remaining on earth people, people who can shine? Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because they're all having the same dream, which is all sort of like telepathic in ways. They all seem to have like a sixth sense of some kind or two and two differing degrees. Um, so a lot of that, like, it kept coming. I was like, is this like That's a world of... an interesting theory. Like, almost like, like everybody who doesn't have this psychic ability, maybe those are all the people who died. And everybody who's left can either be psychically accessed by Mother Abigail or Randall Flagg, right? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. It- in some way. Uh, so, yeah, I, I assume that her baby is because she doesn't seem to have been shining or anything. Very well, she much was having the, the dreams. Story. She's having the dreams. True. But you, she was already um, pregnant at the start of the book. So you're saying maybe it's right. like it's like that connection linked, has given it to her maybe. linked in that way. But but that wouldn't explain why she would be immune if if the shining or whatever power has some sort of immunity built into it. But mm-hmm. just things I was thinking about. Yeah, the bomb was fucking wild and, and unexpected. So I, I do want to save a little bit of the bomb talk because um, we're about to get into Nick next. And I think that, that yeah. he's a character to really focus on it. But before we get to there, I want to I want to focus in on um, Stu and Franny together as, as, as a couple. And like, okay. what was your what was your take on them together? Do you like them together? Is it interesting? 
Yeah, I do. I like them as a couple. It feels slightly weird that, you know, their their age is different, that different. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's like through the course of like learning more about Stu, um, like I like him as a person. I yeah. like him as a leader. He seems broadly likable. Like, And he's like a real character still. Like there are moments where where she, you know, she tells him that she's pregnant and she doesn't he, she she expects him to react one of two ways uh either like bail on her or just like embrace her and say like he loves her and like nothing everything's going to be okay and he kind of does something in the middle he doesn't he doesn't run away or anything but he he doesn't like embrace her he like looks at her and is like evaluating and is sort of like which which i think after going through everything you've gone through in this in this situation like that would be somewhat realistic um so he's not necessarily and i don't think and we talked about that like a lot of these characters aren't perfect that's not and it's not like that makes him imperfect that that one situation but there are things that he has his things another thing that's that sort of can be a little bit jarring is how much time we spend to how much time we spend in certain situations and then how much time whizzes by us sometimes mm -hmm. so like we sort of get the like we zoom in on certain moments and then we zoom out and they travel across the country in a few pages and you know all this time has passed which obviously needed to have happened for like an epic story of this of this size uh so you know there, it feels quick to us in some ways like their relationship seems to advance pretty quickly and they're like married basically at this point um yeah and it, it happened quickly for us but it seemingly was more time for them because they were traveling yeah he does he does an interesting job with that of like zooming in zooming out keeping the pace moving you know although some people might argue against that um i know some people really don't like stephen king's pace and think that he you know has too much in there describes too many things mm -hmm. but um He's definitely a slow burn yeah. author in, in his longer books like it's clear yeah. that that he like wanted to take his time with certain stuff so one thing that happens that i think we should at least spend a little bit of time on is um when they're still on the road they encounter these i think like three or four guys who have this quote-unquote harem of women that they've captured and there's this wild shootout um a bunch of people die and they sort of liberate these women um and then they come along um to the boulder free zone what do you think of that whole part? I mean, the horrific shit going on, right? Yeah. Like these guys are like all there's like four men and eight women, I think. And they're just like raping these women every day, drugging them so that they don't fight back. Um, there's like a moment that I actually had to like I was so shocked by it that I took it back and played it out loud for my girlfriend because she's already read the book. And I was like, do you remember this part? Because this is wild. Um, they said something about how like he took barbed wire and like ran it across her butt. Yeah. For, and then like her rectum bled for days. And I was like, what the fuck? It is wrong with these people. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, Pushing that, the that envelope, was, you know what I mean? Like, I, I yeah. feel like I don't know where like the road came out. I, I should probably look that up. But um, Stephen King is so well read. He's trying to like blend genres and stuff, you know, and, and I feel like he he's like, I'm going to write this epic fantasy, but I want it to also be this gritty post-apocalyptic brutal thing you know and he writes horrors is like primary genre so like he wants mm -hmm. to go there he wants to push the envelope i think he felt like that was an essential calling to the horror writer is like i'm gonna go with the extreme details that people aren't gonna expect and um he's he's talked about that how he you know the the different elements of horror whether that's like you know creepiness uh terror uh or or just the gross out and he like talks about how he does all of them um and and that is definitely like kind of a gross out moment um but you know he he feels like that's all tools in the toolbox right and it is it's it's extremely shocking uh 
And I, I don't, you know, the barbed wire thing is a crazy thing to have come up with in his Stephen King brain. But um, <laughs> like the the harem itself, like is something that like some of the worst people in society would do if they survived in this apocalyptic situation. So it's not like it's uh, again, it's not like it's this fantasy thing. It is pretty gritty and real. And of course, something like this would probably happen. Uh, it was just wild. And then the shootout was was interesting. Stu was kind of the only person who could actually fight back with the he was like the only person that could handle a gun well, it seemed like. Uh and even then he wasn't like great. So it was an interesting sort of sequence. So I definitely shouldn't bring up the road because it was written in two thousand six. <laughs> Much newer novel really? than I thought. Yes. Yeah, wow, I thought it was older than that. <laughs> I thought it was older too. Um but no, two thousand six. Uh anyway, well, one of these days we're gonna cover the road. Um I think there was, uh, I was a little bit frustrated with the characters and how they don't, I feel like they didn't get integrated into society very well. Um, they, they continue to be kind of outsiders. And I was noticing that with a lot of, a lot of the women, especially in his, in his, uh, society, you know, Franny and Lucy, um, and Susan, a lot of them like have very specific sort of gendered roles, you know, Franny is, oh, she's the moral compass of the of the committee. You know, I don't know. It just felt very, like, stereotypical. Um, man's world kind man's of Man's world like, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and I know he also talks about, like, well, now, you know, that's what happens when you revert back to the old ways. And I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, there are moments. It's clearly patriarchal. Like, very, it's, and, like, it, this world has been for, for, you know, a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and, uh but there's the moment that it wasn't really needed where it was like, you know, women uh, are vulnerable when they're when they're pregnant and like they're weaker than men and da 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 all that. He goes on about it for a little bit. Yeah. And like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think there was really any need for it. I know that, that that is a theory behind like how the patriarchy came to be and like, you know, why it persisted and his point about it, like probably holding more weight in a post-apocalyptic world, I think makes sense. Yet there's so many other things from like America that, and like modern society that are brought along that it's frustrating mm -hmm. to not see more characters want to bring that to, to, to their right. new society. Um, yeah. I thought it was very interesting that like yeah. they, they like the first time we jump into a committee meeting, it's literally just like they're, they're acting as if it's like a full on like hearing, like in a court system. And they're like, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah. And all the, the specific. And I'm like, how do they know how to do all this? Like, I don't know how to run a, run a court meeting. Yeah, with like minutes and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. Um, there was one part in particular. I guess I'll bring it up now that because uh, I'm talking about the the role that the women play. And, and one thing that I, I, I stands out to me is we don't see a lot of alternative lifestyle type characters, if you want to call it that. You know, the people who are you know bisexual or you know homosexual, mm -hmm. whatever. Like in our Boulder Free Zone, and one of the only ones we do is is. Uh, Dana Jerkins. She is described as being a lesbian at one point that uh, France, uh, Franny sort of reveals. And the way Stu reacts to it, I thought was bizarre. And the like assumptions that are made were, were showing me that like, it felt like King doesn't understand what it means to be a lesbian <laughs> um, or to be bisexual. Yeah. Because he talks about her being like a man. He's like, oh, I didn't think she was a man hater. And it's like, that's not what a lesbian is. That's, that's a different thing. And then like, and then, and then the example like uh, Franny gives is that she's like, oh, I think she's bi now because she seems okay with everybody. And it's like, that's not what bisexual means either. Like it, very, it was very like, I, I think, I don't know how you do so much research and like com 
understand things so well and then just like fail completely at understanding what what all of that means yeah um it, it was a little bit bizarre and shows me that there's just like some stuff that that king need to work on you know we're looking back at, right. at a book you know uh, although it was updated I, we should also say like i don't know in if you've 90s, noticed yeah. it, it was updated in the, in the revised version and a lot of the references yeah. get updated to like the 90s and like you know late 80s and stuff um although it was written in the 70s but I don't think he updated a lot of this stuff because he probably felt like it would it would like open up a can of worms if he started revising this kind of stuff because people have read both versions. Um, I don't know. This just feels very dated to me, a lot of this stuff. And, yeah. The argument uh, and like devil's advocate here because I totally agree. He, you know, it's not, he's not very progressive, clearly. But there could be something here where he's saying like Stu feels that doesn't understand sure the sexuality of it. Yeah. And like like you can you can make that claim that like it's a it's the character. Um, but when it's multiple characters talking and then, and, and nobody's giving right. the, like, no one's correcting them. I don't know. Mm. It, just, it just seems a certain way, man. It's hard to, hard to argue. And plus, you know, it's presented in sort of omniscient POV sometimes where there's some of that stuff, but let's not linger on it too long. Let's talk about Nick and then we can get into the bomb. Yeah. Nick, my favorite character. Our, yeah. We both talked about how much we liked him. Yeah. So Nick Andrus, uh, he eventually recovers from the infection in his leg and begins his journey to Hemingford home, Nebraska. Along the way, he meets Tom Cullen and later Brentner, June Brinkmeyer, Gina McCone, Dick Ellis, and Olivia Walker. The group becomes a surrogate family to him. Andros leads the growing band of survivors to both Nebraska and Mother Abigail, who guides them on to Boulder. Andros serves on the Free Zone Committee, for which he is the leading thinker and eventually recruits Tom Cullen as a member of the spy contingent that travels to the West Coast. He does not like or trust Harold Lauder and unilaterally nixes Lauder's initial placement on the FZC, which is the, the Free Zone Committee. Andros is killed by Lauder's assassination attempt on the committee, and it is later revealed that Andros was meant to lead the stand against Flag by Mother Abigail. So, I mean, yeah, Nick dies in the explosion. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I remember, like, I, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. I just remember being gutted by this the first time I read the Oh, book. yeah. Yeah, devastated. I uh, I was like, no way. I was like, yes. Um, like, Stu represents the, the like, nor the leader, the person who's, like, the the natural protagonist, sort of, yeah. in kind the, of the story. Man, yeah. but, but Nick was also sort of right there with him. Yeah. And I, I assumed that Nick was going to be like massive in the battle to come. I assumed that he was going to be because he had like, I think it was being set up uh, and like, you know, I, I hook, line and sinker. Like I, I bit onto that bait that he was going to he was being set up to be sort of the person who would who I think he's meant to be the character that audiences respond the most to. He's got the most he's been through the, some of the hardest things that you could be through in this yeah. in this situation. Um and he led. He already led a small contingent himself. Uh, his relationship with Tom, who we'll talk about with since we're here, mm -hmm. uh, is something that like when Tom went off, you know that Nick was taking it the hardest, even though he was the sort of the spearhead to like get him to go. Yeah. And and to know that like whatever happens with Tom, whatever like ultimately, I know that there's going to be a moment where Tom is looking for Nick. I assume if he makes it back or they make it over or whatever. Um, and it just sucks to know that like he's not going to be there. And really, he died trying to save everyone. Yeah. Like he he had like the shine, at, like some sort of again the same kind he of thing. He knew that he knew that the bomb was there, and he was like trying to get to it. To I don't know, do something with it, defuse it, he was or trying to do like something. To, yeah, but, take it apart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
it was rough and and like i i was like I, they kept talking about a bomb or like you know they were hinting it he was harold was creating something and then nadine planted the bomb and i assumed like a bunch of people would die potentially because the bomb was being planted yeah. definitely didn't think it would be main characters i was like <laughs> oh okay this will be like a shocking thing to motivate people to leave and and you know to go fight um flag but yeah i was it was i definitely didn't take it well i was kind of pissed at, at king for for a minute but uh, you know from the story standpoint i understand and it you know there's a reason why it's as affecting as it is yeah i mean it's a gut punch and it's definitely meant to be um i also read a part or i read a sort of outside the scope of the story but i think it's interesting king talked about how he f he faced some writer's block with this book and how he now this is you know for king um because he wrote this whole book in like four or five months i think i read somewhere um when he was living in boulder which um we talked about you know which i think is important for the fact that so much of it takes place in boulder um but the part he got stuck on was the formation of the new boulder free zone and he felt like he was like endlessly writing about committees and forming of you know the society and then it was the idea that Nadine and and Lauder would come together and hatch this plan and use the bomb and blow up Nick and that was he literally credits that idea with like getting him out of it he had to like blow it up to wake up the characters and make them take Randall Flagg seriously and um I don't know I just thought that was interesting the idea of like being kind of stuck but then literally like blowing it up and going like somebody's gonna have to like wake everybody up and make them deal with this threat um, and that's kind of what happens like in the plot of the book, right? Like it makes the characters focus, but then also like that was what King had to do to himself to get himself to, to move on to the next, next phase of the novel. Yeah. Very interesting choice. And you can kind of see that, you know, with, with the stuff that goes on that he was kind of spinning his wheels as much as I enjoyed it. Uh, it did feel like we were just kind of spending a lot of time. I mean, you know, over a third of the book, easily over a third of the book yeah. takes place here. And it's, you know, again, I think that this, all of this weight that he's bringing to all of these characters, the baggage that they have, the, the interactions that they've had is, is what's going to make the finale feel, you know, it, uh, it'll be satisfying, I assume, uh, heading there. And, and so like, it's not like I, it's not like I didn't enjoy it. Like I said, I, I, uh, but, but very interesting to know that like Nick killing Nick, I'm sure it was hard for him to do too, because I think that he's a character, like I said, that was being built up to be, I feel like he probably thought, all right, Nick is going to lead the charge. And that's why he wrote it in that, mm -hmm. that Abigail says like Nick was going to lead the charge um, because he probably had that sort of idea going, going into the, the showdown with Randall Flagg. Yeah. And then realized he had to kill Nick in order to get there. I think you're right. And I think it also shows that this book wasn't like thoroughly plotted. It was kind of, uh, it was developed over time, you know, as, as, uh, some writers like to say like it's done by the seat of the pants um and it seems mm -hmm. like that is probably the case here so let's talk about tom cullen because he inter he sort of interacts a lot with nick and as we're still still on nick he's a new character who gets introduced in book two so tom cullen uh a man initially thought to be in his mid-20s to mid-30s appears to be mild to moderately intellectually challenged Andros encounters him while cycling from Arkansas to Nebraska through Oklahoma. After Andros learns that Cullen remembers his father's return from the Korean War, he realizes that Cullen must be much older, perhaps in his 40s. The two bond closely, despite the fact that Andros cannot speak and Cullen cannot read Andros's notes. When the two encounter Brentner, Cullen is finally able to learn Andros's name. 
Cullen's speech includes colloquialisms such as my laws and laws yes. He frequently references himself in third person. Cullen also punctuates important points, believing them to be spelled M-O-O-N, such as exclaiming M-O-O-N, that spells Nebraska, when he is required to make a logical connection. Cullen can slip into a form of self-hypnosis, wherein he is able to make connections that he cannot make while, quote, awake, that is, conscious and focused on something superficial. Andros, Redman, and Bateman use this ability to place post-hypnotic suggestion in Cullen that will help him to act as a, the third free zone spy. During Cullen's hypnosis, Andros, Redman, and Bateman discover that while hypnotized, Cullen possesses the same type of foresight as Mother Abigail, co concurrently referring to himself as Tom that Andros met in Oklahoma and, quote, God's Tom. Okay, so uh, a character that I, I really like, Tom Cullen, but I think he's deeply problematic, is my guess. Um, yeah, he's not handled he, well. And, and I, I think, I don't know how realistic he is in any way. Um, I, I just have to look at him as sort of just a completely fictional invention, um, that there could be a person like this, um, you know, and just kind of go with it in order to enjoy the character. Um, I don't know. He's he's kind of tough to talk about, um, and, and I think he he's probably a character. One of the characters who has not aged well at all is Tom Cullen, as far as like mm -hmm. being sensitive to to these sort of issues. But I don't know. I still I still like the character. I don't know. What, what's yeah. your thoughts on Tom Cullen? You know, I think King wanted to come into this story approaching a lot of sensitive subjects that and things that people deal with. Like we have Nick with his deafness and his muteness. And we have Tom with whatever ailment he has. I understand wanting to like represent these this sort of character, and I think that like that that's a good idea in general. But uh, yeah, it was tough, especially like I said with with the handling. Now reading it now is tough with the handling of like they're using the R word quite a lot, yeah. like repeatedly. Um, and and it's just tough to hear that in general. But like I, a compelling character, and I think it's like you said, it is tough to talk about. But this idea of a character who. I, I hope this isn't offensive, but to put it in terms of something that I can equate it to is like Tom Collins is is sort of a younger person in in mentally, I would say mm -hmm. like he it seems like he is almost like a child in a grown person's body. I, I really hope that's not offensive. Having a character like this who is powerful and has powers on their own um, and also to be there's sort of the innocence that's baked into that and there's sort of the relationship that's built with like he's he's relying on nick in a lot of ways when they first meet and then and then he ultimately saves nick from this tornado which is a scene that we should definitely talk about the tornado scene um and like i i think there's a lot of interesting things going on there and i just don't know how how well they hold up like you said it's really tough to talk about yeah i mean <sighs> I do love them together when he can't read and Nick can't um, can't speak. So uh, they have no way of communicating. He can't tell him his name. And yet they still form this bond together and look out for each other. Um, I really liked that part. Um, I, I love the way they interact with each other. It, it almost becomes like a, I don't want to say like a father son, but maybe more like siblings, like, like mm -hmm. brothers. Um, and it, like an older brother yeah, yeah that that's a good comparison for sure yeah i really like that part too right and um mm -hmm. i i can't help but point out that that you know it, it is sort of othering the way that he uses his like different mental state to to like say that he's magical 
Um, you know, like he uses it as like a way to, to, to take the thing that makes him different and say that that is like, you know, cosmic or, 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 you know, tied to magic in some way. And, and I don't know, that, that's the way he, he works in the story. Um, also the way that he's like able to be hypnotized and like made into a sleeper agent, it feels very like Manchurian candidate. And I think he even mentions that at one point. And I'm wondering <laughs> if that was like on purpose. You know, like, yeah, he's this like he can be triggered by this like catchphrase and it's going to. And he keeps doing yeah. the M.O.N. thing. And that feels very, very deliberate yeah. to me. Obviously, and that, like, that was MO... in, that was in it as well. Right. Like, wasn't there. Was it? I don't remember if it was uh, if it was um, Henry who, who says that or if there was like another character in the in the ward with Henry who used to say that. Henry. Was, I remember Henry like looking at the moon and the moon like speaking to him. I do remember yeah. that. Or, or somebody in jail. There was somebody in jail at one point. Maybe it was older yeah, Henry. If, you, if, 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 you're, was, a, if you're a king head and you remember, you, you know exactly what we're talking about. Write in and let us know. I, I feel like there's a connection between Tom Cullen. I feel like Tom Cullen might have even been in the ward with Henry. I, I don't know. Um, wow. I, don't, I could be wrong about that. <laughs> right, right in and let me know. I'm sure people know. And that's something else I was thinking about. That could be potentially like sort of world breaky because like how could Tom Collins exist in a world where I, I guess it would be the before the stand world because how could he exist in a world where there's well, I mean, no obviously the stand doesn't happen like in it because they, you know, the, the way they, right. age. I, I think it would be, um, I think it's the multiverse parallel, like, universe. parallel universes yeah, parallel. and stuff. Yeah, got I mean, it. I think that's what it okay. is. So the M-O-O-N thing, I assume, is going to be important going forward. Uh, like, that's a theory that I had was, like, he keeps M-O-O-N, like, misspelling things, uh -huh. which is, like, again, feels kind of weird to to be, like, that. that's his sort of repeated phrase, yeah. and it feels offensive to have him be, like, misspelling things yeah. uh, as his repeated thing. But anyway, uh, that moon thing, like, I don't, I, I just feel like that's something... There's something to that. There's going to be something that recurs right. later with that. So one of the other parts that um, one of the characters that I that I really didn't believe. So this is different than like I don't like a character because they um, do things that I don't like in the course of the story. Um, this was a character I didn't believe was a real person. And that was when Nick meets up with this young girl um, or, you know, young woman in this town. He meets her in like a supermarket and she immediately wants to have sex with him. Which is so weird. And that's why it's unbelievable to me. Honestly, that's the most unbelievable. That, well, that happening, but also the character just, I just didn't buy the character at all. She was like, um, just hanging out, having a good time, super selfish, you know, like, just like the idea that a character like that could, could exist in this world. It was, was bizarre to me. That you like, she wouldn't. She's been alone in this town when everybody she knows has been killed, everybody she loves has been killed. She has to take care of herself, even if stuff's lying around, she still has to do it. The idea that she would just be like on a holiday and just, you know, be in complete nympho mode, just wanting to have sex with the first guy she saw and not like at all like nervous or like, I, I don't know, just like, I just didn't believe that character at all. Just, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I assume that I, I've like I've assumed since since reading that that she would come back in some way and be be important and do something. But Nick is, you know, clearly not going to there's no confrontation to be had with Nick because Nick is gone now. Um, so maybe that was just a random one off character. Yeah, I don't remember. She may come back in book three. We'll see. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Larry Underwood, our good friend, Larry, who we <laughs> really disliked in the first book. Uh, I think it's safe to say he becomes more likable in this in this book. Um, he, he's sort of beginning his journey to becoming a better man. So haunted by his dreams of Flag and Rita 
Underwood is in a semi-catatonic state of self-reflection for several days until he finally collapses from exhaustion in New Hampshire. This event is the beginning of a turning point in Larry's life, a change of soul, from that of a taker to something more. Recovering after a night's sleep, Underwood travels to Maine where he plans to spend the summer until he meets Nadine Cross and the young Leo Rockway, known only as Joe, and behaving like a feral creature. The three travel together to Ngunquint, where they find Lauder's painted sign and the directions to, that it displays. Deciding to follow the directions, Underwood leads Cross and Joe to Stovington, Vermont, meeting Lucy Swan along the way. In Stovington, they find only Lauder's directions to Nebraska. Underwood, who gradually finds himself in the unexpected role of a trusted group leader, brings a growing party of people across the country to Nebraska and finally to Boulder. Although Underwood is initially interested in Cross, she spurns his advances and he begins a relationship with Swan instead. Arriving in Boulder, Underwood settles down with Swan and Joe, becoming a member of the Free Zone Committee. Cross attempts to reconcile her relationship with Underwood, but he refuses to be amenable, choosing to remain with Swan. Underwood later breaks into Lauder's home with Goldsmith after Joe instructs him to embark on an investigation before something horrible happens. They find Lauder's ledger, in which Lauder has, docu uh, has documented his intention to kill Redman. However, Lauder's plan is already in motion at this stage, and Redman narrowly escapes the assassination attempt the next day. Underwood leaves Boulder with Redman, Brentner, and Bateman after Mother Abigail instructs them to go to Las Vegas. Okay. Um, so yeah, some stuff we haven't touched on here, um, you know, namely the introduction of Joe and Nadine. Um, so yeah, and, and him and obviously Underwood, you know, Larry growing into this role more. Once again, this, this summary has a lot of last names. So hopefully you could follow that, uh, Nadine Cross, you know, Larry Underwood, you know, Leo Rockway, uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on Larry? Um, I was kind of, I was kind of along the, the, the lines that I thought that he would, uh, sort of start to be redeemed and it happens fairly quickly. So it wasn't like it was this massive theory that I had or anything, but like almost right away when we start book two, he, he's like on his own and then eventually Nadine and, and Joe find him and then he like finds himself being protective and like realizing like he doesn't want what happened to, um, Rita, Rita, Rita. Uh, he, he doesn't want what happens to, to Rita to happen to them. And so he, you know, starts to take on this, this role of like a protector and, and, you know, he's scared of teaching her how to ride a motorcycle. Um, I, I like that he's being redeemed. He's much more interesting now than he was when he was just being a dick all the time. Yeah. Uh, he, he still has the cool thing where like, he's a musician, which I, you know, I enjoy, um, and Joe like sort of connecting with that, I think is really fun. And Joe running around with a guitar case all the time and yeah. cr like cracking it out and just being like a prodigy and just starting to play like all the stuff that he plays, um, just off of, you know, his own ear mm -hmm. thought that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And then like he just skip ahead a lot when he, when they're in the free zone committee, when they're in the free zone, uh, his relationship with cross is strained because like he starts like uh, in a relationship with Swan, who who like Nadine like sort Nadine has this weird that we should talk about this for sure. Nadine has this thing where she's a virgin, and she's compelled to keep that virginity because she's always felt like there was some dark purpose to it. Literally, her words in like mm -hmm. in her own model in her own like head was like she felt like it had some dark purpose, um, which is ominous. And then uh, well, she's like uh, she she gets the impression, and we get the impression that she is 
uh, fated to get with Randall Flagg and like right. bear his child. Which feels and, real fucking weird too. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, to me, it's kind of setting her up as like, is she going to like give birth to the Antichrist or something, right? Like, yeah, is that right. what's going to happen with this, you know? It does and, feel like that a little bit. Mm-hmm. All the stuff that goes on where she kind of does love uh, Larry, but it never, nothing ever comes of it because of that relationship with, I think she does come on to him though, right? And he says yeah. no. Oh yeah. It, he's with, yeah. She comes yeah. on to him. He says no. And that's what sends her to Harold essentially right like she leaves yeah. and goes to Harold and their relationship their is sex stuff wild. yeah their sex stuff is also <laughs> wild again creation of of Stephen King where I'm just like okay Stephen King you're, go- you're gonna <laughs> yeah it seemed seemed a little bit over the top wild yeah um which like you know not kink shaming or anything like that right. it just seems like the the really the toxicness of that relationship and everything going on with it well, um yeah but it's very yeah, like they're they're both using each other and like you know, she's using Harold because she knows or like suspects that she can use sex as a way to like get him to do what she wants. And then he like in turn starts to resent her for it once he gets what he wants out of it. And he, he turns it on her, I guess, in a way. And um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a very toxic relationship. It's not healthy in any way. So it's not as much about like what they're doing. It's it's more about just the the way it's set up is very disturbing the context yeah and it's it's also like it seems like she's using it to entice him towards flag like like to basically saying like you know if you have sex if you want this sex if you want all this stuff that i'm gonna do which i guess they don't technically that's another thing we should say is that they don't actually have sex they do everything else well it depends on how you define sex a lot of people would say that everything they're doing is also sex is it is sex yeah (laughs) in terms of like we should say vaginal sex yeah (laughs) Yeah. that she's still technically a virgin in that way yeah um which is so still like leading to the flag situation i assume yeah um and and you know so she she was well, basically and, and like, another example of like women being relegated to certain roles right like like her and franny it's both about like you know either like the child she's carrying or the child she could carry it's very like right. i don't know it's just like that's her their role in society now is to bear children this is all stuff that didn't occur to me when i read this book 10 years ago or, or if it did i didn't like linger on it or or, or, or or like ask myself what does this mean it was just more like okay yeah, to put myself exactly to put myself in the shoes of like a younger me reading this, I would have been like, "This stuff is awesome because it's it's so shocking and crazy." Exactly. You know what I mean? And like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, ha- I would have been like, "This is cool for the fact that it is so over the top and so shocking mm-hmm. in these ways." And I think that that you know, like I said, I think society was also like that a little bit um, to an extent. Yeah. So I mean, Nadine, she's also another one of those characters where like you want to root for her at first, but then she she like. When she gets rebuffed by Larry, she like goes full into her role with Flag. Like she feels like that's that's what she's destined to do. I guess it is a little weird that like Larry turning down sex ends up being like bad. <laughs> like is his commitment to Lucy and not you know you know sleeping with this other woman that ends up being what sets Nadine off. I don't know. Is that is that is that I I think it's it's supposed to be just kind of like ironic or like um. Yeah, I guess ironic. <laughs> um, how did you view that part? Like, do you blame Larry at all, or is it? What 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 is King setting up? No, there? I think that's just the motivation, right? Like, that's to motivate Nadine to do these things for yeah. more than anything. Yeah, and like you know, it's been set up in the dreams and everything that she's going to be in, involved with Flag in some way. Okay, so I have two other characters I want to focus in on before we're done. Um, I don't necessarily need to read all of his. Uh, 
summary, but let's talk about the trash can man. Cause he was introduced in part one and we get a lot more of him here. We get his run in with the kid uh, and a lot of really troubling stuff goes on between the two of them. And then yeah. ultimately the kid gets uh, killed by wolves uh, or, or is assumed to die to the wolves. Um, and uh, trash can is able to escape from him and join the the group in Las Vegas. And this is like one of the only times we've actually seen what's going on in Las Vegas is through his eyes. Yeah. So what would you think of, what do you think of this character? What do you think uh, of this part? I mean, trash can man felt like such a weird character to me going in like to the, in book one, I was like, I don't understand how this has anything to do with anything else other than the fact that I assumed he would be manipulated. Um, and then we get this whole, this is a long chapter also. This yeah. is like very, very And I think long. most of this was added back into the, the expanded version. Okay. I think a lot of this stuff was added. So Gotcha. Which I don't, you know, I don't know if, I mean, like it's it's in the version we're reading, so we just, we, we can't treat it differently. Right, right, right. It, but to be honest, it kind of feels like it could have, you could just pull this out and it's a short story, like within the world of the stand or something like that. You yeah. know, like if, if King wanted to do something like that. Uh, but it, it, uh it goes places so he meets this this person the kid and right right away you're like this this person seems like uh unhinged a little bit yeah he's got this really nice car and he's like super proud of it and but he has like his gun out at all times right or like oh yeah yeah oh yeah he's got this like pompadour like he felt like a throwback to another another era even at the time that this book was written which is maybe what king was going for he's got like a hot rod and stuff yeah yeah uh um, so yeah this guy's this guy's wild and then they he he i'm trying to remember the order and how it happens but basically they're dry he's like i'll give you a ride and then he jumps in and they start drinking beers he's obsessed with cores course yeah of yeah. all beers yeah it was funny yeah, you was believe like, that happy crappy is the thing he says over and over again so again <laughs> like he has like a little repeated phrase he says a lot you know yeah they end up in a hotel room uh at some point, right? Or it's some, yep. it's some sort of room. And uh, they just drink beers and drink beers and drink beers. And he kind of forces Trash Can Man to drink these beers. And I thought Trash Can Man was going to be like the char- a character that we just hate completely. Yeah. Um, and then there's like this, this you feel pity. You feel like a lot of things, honestly, yeah. for, for like his situation and the things that go on here. But it's it's dark. They uh, drink a bunch of beers, and then like in the middle of the night, he's woken up and like sodomized by a gun and and yeah. like is he gets raped, raped. By, yeah by he's kid, raped yeah. yeah and uh it's it's super super graphic and brutal uh yeah. yeah and then they get up the next day and continue their journey and they find a roadblock and and uh in there's a tunnel which is a callback to the whole larry situation and and it, that omniscient voice um does kind of comment on that and like you know in the way that larry w- pushed through the tunnel um Basically, uh, the kid has trash game and go to the tunnel and find a way to move all this stuff out of the way because he can't leave his sick hot rod behind. Um, so he goes off on his own and gets too scared and comes back, uh, realizing that, like, there's no way for them to get through. And then that's when the kid, like, starts freaking out. And, and But, like, he's also, the trash game man's also kind of, like, praying to the dark man or to, to yeah, the he's person. Been, he's been, like, communing with Flag, it feels yeah. like. Yeah. And then, that, and then, like, this is the second time, technically, we haven't talked about it yet, but this is the second time we've seen animals manipulated by, by Flag. And so these wolves come up and, and kind of, like, you know, start attacking the kid. And then some, some of the, what I thought, a part that I thought was kind of fun and cool was they, the wolves, like, escort him through to the yeah. to the next part of his journey like escort him across across the country i assume back to to vegas and uh that was kind of fun uh 
and then he gets to Vegas, and there's this so, whole so like, I got, infrastructure. Real quick, I, I got to say that this, this feels very Lord of the Rings to me. Like this feels like Sau- doesn't Sauron like control like wolves and crows and like other like creatures, dark creatures, like, something dark like creatures that, yeah. and stuff. Like he can see through their eyes or something, and I think so. Or, or it's set, it's mentioned that he can. Um, and, and the way that that's tied together, and, and he sort of controls these creatures. Yeah, it, it feels it. This feels very fantasy to me. Um, but it's it's presented in a cool way, yeah. Yeah, and then the the whole there's like infrastructure set up at, at when he gets there. It's yeah. like he they, meets, they've clearly he meets uh he meets our character from the from the start. Lloyd, he, Lloyd, he meets yeah. Lloyd, who is quite different in my opinion. Like I think you can tell a changed person that yeah. he's been changed by his role and maybe by this item he has. It seems to have like made he's him like smarter. confident. Yeah, he's More like confident, confident and yeah. he has like a. He has a position of power, it seems like, a little bit within the ranks. Yeah. Um, eventually, they're like, "All right, Trash Can Man, you're gonna meet. You're gonna meet Randall Flag." And then he takes him to meet Randall Flag. Um, yeah. And he sort story. of t- tells him that he wants him to to help him like burn stuff, right? Which is exactly mm-hmm. what Trash Can wants to hear. Is what he always wanted to do. Um, this is our pyroma- pyromaniac pyro yeah. character from the first book. If you yeah. didn't remember that from last week, yeah, and. Um, so I've been trying to stay away from anything about the new show, but mm-hmm. I remember I, I couldn't help but stumble onto some outrage because, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's on all over Twitter and I'm on Twitter a lot. I know that there is a lot of people upset with how Trash Can is shown in the show. I haven't seen it yet, so I can't comment on it myself. I'm sure that's something we'll touch on. But apparently the his his characterization or the way he's shown and is, is some somehow just like really crosses a line from what I've been seeing. So um, so that's something to look out for, which I'm sure we'll we'll pick up on. But um, and I, I'm sure I mean, it's problematic in the book, too, but it's something about like taking it to a modern day, making it a show that comes out today. I mean, it's just going to strike people differently. And, and I assume there's something about it that just makes it worse. So I'll be curious to see what that is. <laughs> you know, stay tuned. Um, so this also brings me up, uh, brings up a part that we didn't touch on. I didn't know when we touch on it, but I want to do it now. Um, we get a whole section from the point of view of Kojak. And it's one of my favorite parts of the entire book. It's I just so love awesome. it. It's yeah, so, it's so awesome. So first off, fucking Glenn Bateman, how dare yeah. you? He left Kojak. I mentioned Kojak in, in our last week's coverage just because I was like, I love Kojak. This is great. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we can't take him on motorcycles. So we're just going to ditch him in the woods and he'll take care of himself or whatever. I'm like, they left their dog behind. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? You figure out, a, you get a backpack, you figure out a way to yeah. like take that dog with you i don't know what you got to do but you find you get a sidecar for your motorcycle you find a way uh but anyway yeah they don't and then and then kojak finds them like travels all the way to boulder thousands of miles yeah and when they find him he's like all injured um and they're like i don't know what happened to this dog but he's he clearly got in a tussle with something and then we get this section where it's kojak's <laughs> point of view and talking about how he goes to nebraska and then he gets in this like epic battle with these wolves. He fights off like four wolves, kills like two of them, maims another one, keeps the other yeah. one at bay. Kojak's a complete badass. Um, and I just love the way that it was written. I don't know. Like I, I just thought it was really cool. And like I had read other Stephen King books even at the time of reading this. And, and also just like one thing I like about Stephen King is you don't know where he's going to go. You're like, this guy is capable of anything. He's a madman. And right. so, like, could he have killed Kojak in a brutal way? Absolutely, he's capable of that. <laughs> and we've seen that happen. I mean, like, an it, like, uh, you know, animals are often killed in, in King's books. So yeah. I thought, like, I don't know how Kojak's going to gonna be dealt with here, but, like, 
This is one of the coolest parts. And then we hear that Kojak lives for a long time, lives until he's like 16. So we even get like a happy ending attached to Kojak's story. Yeah, that was uh, cool. Which I thought was cool, yeah. Which kind of is a spoiler for the fact that like life goes on, you know, yeah. after the end events of this book. Yeah, and I mean, he's doing it on purpose, right? Like he, right. this is not done accidentally. So, so King is using it to foreshadow something. Um, it's like giving you a little bit of hope, but also a little bit of, um, cause it said that he out long outlived Glenn Bateman. Yeah. And so we don't know. It's like, wait a minute. Does Glenn Bateman die? Of That's exactly sort of natural what Natural causes yeah. or from something else. So he, he raises this question in your mind. Glenn Bateman is one of the oldest of the group. Yeah, but he's not as anyway. old as like the judge who I think was right. like in the seventies who gets sent. So like, that's true. I think he's middle-aged, so I don't know. It's uh, That raises a question in and of itself. How do, right. how and why does he outlive Glenn Bateman? So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. So let's talk about Abigail, Mother Abigail. Yeah, Mother Abigail is our last major character I want to touch on. So let me read a little bit about her. Abigail Fremantle, also known as Mother Abigail, leads the, quote, good survivors of the Captain Tripp's plague and also claims to be a prophet of God. The survivors have dreams of her telling them to come to see her in Nebraska. She is 108 years old and lives in a farmhouse near Hemingford home, Nebraska, and was known in her community pre-superflu mainly for surviving vicious racism when she was younger and voting for Republicans in every election she had ever seen. Born to freed slaves from South Carolina, Abigail outlived a succession of three husbands as well as her seven children. She is of the point... 0.6 population that is immune to Captain Tripp's virus and initially appears to some of the plague survivors in their dreams, drawing them to her just as Randall Flagg uh, draws the evil sur survivors to him. She and her followers make their way towards Boulder, Colorado, where they establish the Boulder Free Zone government. Abigail receives, Abigail receives visions from God, though when she believes she is, has sinned due to pride, she loses her foresight and goes into exile in the wilderness. She later regains her ability and returns to the Boulder Free Zone just in time to inadvertently save most of the Free Zone committee from Harold Lauder's assassination attempt. On her deathbed, she shares one final vision. Four men from the committee are to travel to the West Coast to, to confront Flag. She makes no prediction as to what will occur, only that one will fall before arriving to Las, in Las Vegas, while the remainder will be brought before Flag. Mother Abigail dies shortly after revealing this prophecy. Okay. So Mother Lots Abigail, a very yeah. problematic character. <laughs> um, I'm going to point everyone again. I, I did this in the past, but um, I, I want to point everyone again to uh, Nettie Okorafor's essay, which was called Stephen King's Super Duper Magical Negroes. It was published uh, in 2004. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Um, Nettie Okorafor is a fan of Stephen King's. Um, but she outlines this problem in, in a way that I think is is, is a must read, um, and it talks a lot about his magical Negroes, as she calls it, in uh, and I think others have called it, in his works. And Mother Abigail is definitely that. Um, she's one of the only black people that seems to be in the Boulder Free Zone, um, and she is this prophet character. She's magical. She's there to save and service the white people. Um, there's just a lot of problems <laughs> with this character. Yeah. Um, but all of that being said, I think she's the Gandalf of this story. I think she's the Gandalf to the Lord of the Rings in the Lord of the Rings comparison. We've yeah. made the Lord of the Rings comparisons. And when she left and just went into the woods randomly, I was like, oh, so like we have to get rid of our Gandalf character so people can be in peril and things can happen. And like, you yep. know, the all, the all knowing, all seeing wizard isn't here to save everyone. Yep. 
Yep, and that's that's what happens when she dies. She gives one last prophecy and then dies. Um, which you know, and and to to King's credit, his his Gandalf dies and stays dead <laughs> essentially, right? Well, I, we don't know yet. Yeah, we'll that's true. We haven't read the I, third book. I, I, I assume that she's going to come back as even more powerful and uh, yeah, maybe to fight Sauron. <laughs> yeah. Flag. So, yeah, Mother Abigail draws everyone in. I did like a lot of her backstory. She feels you know very well realized as a person even though she has all this other stuff going on that makes that like undercuts that but um yeah i don't know it it was weird how much she was like and she's very tied to like the 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 land and um like the tradition and the old ways of doing things and i think king was recognizing that that is going to work in the same way that like hobbiton in lord of the rings works Right. Like mm-hmm. We talked about how that represents like a certain kind of British, you know, countryside and the old ways. And there's a reason that people find it so homey and comforting. And I think in America, that is this sort of like country live in, you know, old school. She doesn't even have running water. Um, she's very tied to the land and she's very she's very much about like, you know, personal accountability, personal freedom you know, she doesn't want to be taxed. She votes Republican, all this stuff. Right. Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's an interesting character. And, um, I don't know. What did you, what did you think about that? Mother Abigail beyond, beyond the Gandalf? Um, yeah, I mean, I, to, you've already talked about it, but to, to not talk about how offensive that character can, can be, uh, would be obviously doing it ourselves a disservice and everyone listening yeah. it's it's you know there's problematic for sure um and because well, it's othering but, right like it's saying that right. she's magical and it, it's it's yeah it's just it's read read the read the essay i guess like i i don't I, like i could go into it more but i also feel like it's not really for me to say other than just maybe to point you to someone who can say it better yeah so anyway to to get to her as a character and what she means to the story though um you know, like you said, some of her backstory I found to be really compelling. I liked that, like, she, even at her advanced age, was, like, you know, everybody's showing up, so she's going to make this, like, lavish meal for everyone, and, mm-hmm. like, that was going to be her sort of, like, southern She is, like, a really, like, kindly likable old woman, too, right? Like, a lot of that right. stuff is fun. Yeah. Uh, and I like that she's got attitude, too. She's got, like, mm-hmm. a certain agency to her that I think, like, not a, many other women characters in the story have. And she has like um, a fear of weasels, which is interesting how then it keeps yeah. coming up that these weasels are in her dreams mm-hmm. and they represent the dark one. Yeah. And they all came to attack her basically mm-hmm. when she was trying to get this feast together, which was again, like the a small confrontation between the, the maybe angel of the story and the devil of the story or however you want to look at it. Uh, and she's like a hundred something dealing with like however hundreds of, of weasels apparently or like a bunch of them come and try to attack her and she had a fear from when she was a kid was bitten by one uh you know when she goes off into the woods uh i felt like it was a clear moment for me as the reader where king was like i need to separate her from the rest of the pack for now um and like it what did it really accomplish just that to be honest like her character motivation to go out there was kind of it made sense. Like, obviously, she was like, I need to repent or whatever. Yeah, it but felt like she, she was going comes... on a vision quest or something. Like, yeah. yeah. And then ultimately comes back at the last second. And, like, all the circumstances that are there and the shining that's going on, the powers and all of it is very interesting. Uh, she came, basically, she came back just in time to save everybody from the explosion, or, you know, some people from the explosion. 
her prophecies are probably the one of the most interesting things obviously too is like yeah going forward telling us like some of the things that might happen and the teaser of like somebody's gonna die some people are gonna be before yeah. randall flag and we don't know what's gonna happen yeah um, someone's going to all, fall before, all compelling they reach, stuff. before they reach las vegas yeah. so what do you expect i guess is now a good time what do we think is going to happen I, I, what do you think is going to happen in this this third book who do you think is going to fall before they reach las vegas I mean, could be Glenn. We talked about Glenn, potentially. Yeah, so it's uh, Glenn, uh, Ralph, who we haven't talked about. He's kind of a new character. He seems a lot like Stu to me, but maybe even more in the direction of just being like hyper hyper capable in some ways while not being like a book smart kind of guy. Um, he's really likable. Um, so it's Stu, Ralph, Glenn, and Larry are the four that are going. Yeah. So Glenn is a likely candidate. I think I think we'll probably see somebody more shocking like like I don't know. I could see like I could see Stu dying at the end of this is what I mean. Like Stu has a lot there's a lot there's a lot built into his character at this yeah. point. Franny's so him there. and him and Franny have this like going away thing where like she doesn't want right. him to go and then he convinces her that he has to and like they're you know, they're in love and he's going to be the father of this child, you know, to help raise it. Um right. and he has the most to lose. There's a lot of stakes. There's a lot to lose for for Stu. So yeah. he seems like a character that would be like a gut punch to kill at the end for a sacrifice or something here at the end for everybody else to live on. Um, that would be a prediction of mine. Um, I, Kojak is probably just going to be chilling on the porch. Until he's like <laughs> yeah, I think Kojak's done his part now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's tough because like this is the part of the story. I love that Kojak fought off four fucking wolves. It's so cool. Anyway. I know. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, this is the part of the story. Like after reading book one, I assumed that we were going to get more into this this stuff that's coming up in book three in book two. So I was yeah. like, I don't know. The things that I did know were like, we're probably going to see these characters come together. We're going to see, um, I assumed we were going to see more of Mother Abigail and all that kind of stuff. And now we've moved to the point where I'm like, this is the stuff after book one. I also didn't know like what possibly can happen. They're going yeah. to go to Vegas. I don't know what's going to happen along, what along about the trip. The, and we don't know what's happened with the three spies yet. So any, any thoughts about them? What's going to go on with exactly. them? Exactly. I assume that it's not going to go well. Like, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. going to be conflict here. It's not going to go smoothly. Um, you know, somebody, I'm sure Tom probably, I, I, you know, I don't think that, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe I could see the idea of Tom being this like plant plant and it working out. But at the same time, I feel like it's probably not going to work out that smoothly. He's not going to be able to like infiltrate and get all this information and get out. So he, I assume some of them are going to be dead. Some of them are probably captive. Um, they're going to have to go in and save them. But it seems like they've amassed a pretty massive amount of people uh, Flag has to fight. So four people are going to show up. Hopefully some of those initial spies can team up with them and help out. Um, but I genuinely don't know what sort of like cosmic battle we could see because there's like clearly forces of good and evil versus like the virus stuff and like what what else Flag could you know, I know he didn't create the virus. He just like sort of exacerbated a lot of things that went mm -hmm. on with it. But like what other things he's capable of we're, yeah. we're gonna see going forward so yeah. Uh, yeah i don't i don't really know where where it's going to be honest i i can't That's predict fair. much more and, and i that. feel like it's you know we're setting you up for to, to look like a fool haha <laughs> that didn't happen <laughs> you <fool. laughs> um but i do like that this is uh once again to make the lord of the rings comparisons right like there's talk about heading into the mountain it feels like they're on yep. their way to mount doom um, we yep. have multiple parties. We also feel like there's a big battle going to happen. <laughs> you know, we got way um, more out of this out of this Lord of the Rings like comparison than I thought we ever were going to. You know, I thought the comparisons were and there. it's stuff that I completely missed the first time because I had not read Lord of the Rings. I'd watched the films, 
But there right. was something about reading the books, and that's definitely where King's drawing on at this point, you know, when he's writing right. this. So um, it does feel like, and maybe just we spend so much time thinking about it, like I, I can't help but make a lot of these comparisons and just think about the ways that he's riffing off of similar ideas while while changing it, making it very yeah. much his own. It's very cool. Yeah. It's the way that everything, you know, everything everything that's being made is, seems like intersects with other things that are being made. Uh, and that's just unavoidable. And, and in fact, I think it's one of the cool things about art is the way they can they can reflect each other and talk about things that other other writers yeah. have done. Well, well, and like we've said, like people point to Tolkien as like the beginning of all of this, but like there were epic, large scale stories that 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 Tolkien was was drawing inspiration from as well. So it's yeah, cool to absolutely. see sort of like that continuation of it mm-hmm. with King in his work. And clearly, like you have to love someone's work to, to emulate it in this way and to kind yeah. of tr- do your own thing. You're, so it's kind of like this whole, like uh, it's the history of writing and like seeing it evolve over time and seeing these stories like retold in, in new ways. It's, it's always fun. I, I think it's, it's historic, you know, somebody's going to, somebody, I guarantee somebody already has actually taken something that King has created and done oh, a riff abs- on it. Absolutely. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm realizing that our next episode, however, is not on book three. Um, we are actually going to start watching the show. We're going to cover the first five episodes of the CBS All Access series, The Stand, um, and that yeah. will be our next episode. Um, so, yeah, we're going to actually be going back to the beginning here because we don't know how it's going to turn out. But I, Yeah, we're not going to know for a little bit. That might be tough for me, but I do want to make some, some predictions uh, for the show. I think that it's going to be wildly different yeah. than the book it's because I don't know how for one. it's possible. Yeah. yeah I did, see. I, I know almost nothing about this, but I will say one thing that tends to happen with the podcast just from history, is things that are coming out. If I don't, if I'm not uh, sort of like accidentally exposed to something, usually it means that it's not like really, really, really gripping the world. So I don't know how how well the show is doing right yeah, now. Yeah, well, part of know. that, I think, and we'll get into this, is like, I don't know how well CBS All Access is doing. Because <laughs> you have to sign up for a CBS streaming service to watch this. It's the only way to watch it right now. And I just don't know that that has like a future in the streaming world because I just don't see a lot of people wanting to sign up for that kind of thing. You're not a premium yeah service like hbo i know they i know they have star be. trek on there they too be, yeah star trek is on there and that's like true. that's th- those are those star are like trek's doing okay i guess but again like, yeah. i don't hear a lot of people talking about it because i don't think a lot of people have cbs all access but maybe i'm wrong i'm sure we can get into it we can talk about how it's doing um again we have no guarantee that this show is going to be any good i've tried to avoid as much as i can i haven't watched any reviews read anything again i just saw some outrage kind of coming across the twitter feed about crash game man in particular um but i mean that doesn't really surprised me um just it, i guess it, it does surprise me in the way that like i would have hoped that they would have like addressed certain things and modernized it and 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 been smarter um maybe they do that elsewhere but apparently they didn't do it yeah. with trash can man so but this is all this is all just you know conjecture at this point we don't know anything we yeah. we, we so we'll we'll be able to report on that and come next week so I look well, forward to that maybe i think the trash can man episode is like episode six i don't know if he is introduced before that but we actually might not get to it <laughs> anyway but yeah we hope that uh you'll join us for that if you've been watching all along you know see we'll, we'll react to five episodes of tv next week and uh it should be a lot but it should be a lot of fun too um if you liked this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review whatever app you use um that is a good way to help us get the word out like we said earlier in the episode we are excited about the new changes at patreon definitely check that out if you're interested like we said new art on mugs and t-shirts i'm super excited about it go check those out patreon.com forward slash ink to film 
And if you'd like to connect with us, make sure to follow us on social media. We are at ink to film on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We also have a Goodreads page, uh, Goodreads group, which you can find. I think it's just ink to film book club. Uh, and join that up, and we have uh, we have devoted threads to each project we're doing, where people are you know can interact with each other and, and discuss. Yeah, and thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with a TV show. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>